At the crucial moments in the ministry of Jesus, those who were around him were strongly exhorted to hear his word. At the close of the most important sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave this applicatory exhortation. He said, Now whoever has heard these words of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain descended, the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. This was said of the one who heard him. And then again on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17 when Jesus had taken his inner circle of Peter, James and John and and when he was there his glory shone out for just a moment. The Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And we could look at several other of the critical junctures in our Lord's public ministry. And at every time, there was an exhortation to hear him. We've begun to study the parables of Jesus in our Sunday morning services. And specifically, we're spending several weeks on the parable of the sower before we launch out into some of the 39 others. The parable of the sower is about how people hear the preaching of the word and then what they do with it afterwards. The parable is a devastatingly clear tool for spiritual analysis. It's actually clearer than most people want. And it answers the age-old question, why don't all people respond in the exact same way to the preaching of the word? And what this parable teaches is, When people hear, there are a plurality of responses. There is either the simple response that we will see next Sunday, God helping us, of belief, acceptance, obedience, perseverance, and fruit. Or there's the response of unbelief, rejection, disobedience, no fruit. Jesus gave us this parable so we could see into the hearts of men in general but mostly so that we could see into our own heart in particular. This morning, we'll need the help of the Holy Spirit to to hear aright, and so let's ask for that now. Our Father, we do ask now that you would help us to hear your word rightly. We know that your word is profitable for correction and training in righteousness. And so pour out your Holy Spirit upon us now. Keep us from distractions and the work of the evil one who seeks to snatch the word away from us. Give us this morning both repentance and faith as we hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me remind you of some of the context of this parable of the sower. I hope you have your Bible open at at Luke chapter 8. We also will be looking at one of the parallel accounts in Mark chapter 4. And I want to remind you of the importance of this parable. It's important for several reasons. First of all, because this parable, Jesus tells us, heightens and reveals the spiritual condition of its hearers. And then it's important because this parable is the key to all the other 39 parables. If you struggle with biblical interpretation, with hermeneutics, and you wonder, how can I interpret these parables? Jesus plainly tells us in Mark 4, Do you not understand this parable? Then how will you understand all the other parables? The way that we understand this is Jesus interprets it for us. In fact, this is another reason this parable is so important. This parable is the only one of the 40 that Jesus interprets in detail. 
It's important as well because it's the only one of the parables that's repeated in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in detail. As we've seen over the last few weeks, the elements of the parable are very simple. They're even alliterated to make it easy for you. Remember those four elements. First of all, there's seed. That is, the seed is the word of God. We're told in Mark chapter 4, verse 14, the sower sows the word. And so seed is what gets proclaimed from the pulpit. The second element of the parable is sowing. Sowing is the preaching of the word, the authoritative proclamation of the scriptures. The third element is the sower, the least important element actually, the proclaimer of the word. And then for our sake, the most important element of this parable is the fourth, the soils, the heart of the hearers. I've said it several weeks in a row now, you are in this parable. Your face is right there. Your heart is named and described. Perhaps we saw it two weeks ago when we examined the wayside hearer or the hard ground hearer, depending on your translation. This is the heart of the reprobate. This is the person who hears. He doesn't understand the word. He doesn't care if he understands the word and is disinterested. Or perhaps we saw your heart last week when we examined the rocky ground hearer. This is the heart of the apostate. This is the one who hears the word and immediately and joyfully, we are told in the scriptures, receives it. That is, until the demands of the gospel begin to outweigh the benefits of the gospel. Then finally, trouble, affliction, trials, persecutions come and this hearer falls away. And most importantly for our analysis, he bears no fruit. Today we'll examine the most subtle and the most difficult to understand heart of all of these four types of hearts. This is the divided heart, the crowded heart. Before we begin, I want you to note one small interpretive detail. Look at your copy of God's Word in Luke 8. And I want you to know this, of the four types of soil, there's a gradual ascent in the quality of the three types of soil. With each type, we get closer to genuineness, closer to the converted man. And so the first type, the hard ground here, this person is just impenetrable. The wayside here is hard as like stone. And then second, the one we saw last week, the rocky ground here, the second here is simply shallow. The rocky ground here has no depth. And then today, in the third week, we will hear of the thorny ground here. This person is full of possibility for a good heart, but he bears no fruit. Let's see what goes wrong. As I've done each week, let me remind you of the agricultural picture. As Jesus is sitting in a boat uh, by the Sea of Galilee and his hearers are arrayed in front of him and Perhaps right over there is an agricultural field and Jesus can point because he begins the parable in one of the the gospels and says, behold, the sower went out to sow. In other words, look. And so everybody turns their head and looks and they see a, a very common sight, something all of them had seen and many of them had done. They see an agricultural scene. There's a sower who's walking out into a field, a grain field. It's a prepared field. And today is sowing day, planting day. The sower reaches into a bag and he begins to throw seed into the field. 
And as he does, some drops onto the path that he's treading through the field. And that seed gets trampled. It's absolutely worthless. That seed is scooped up by the birds who follow close behind the sower. We've already seen that this symbolizes the action of Satan who comes and snatches the word away immediately. And then there's a second type of soil, the seed that goes out onto the rocky soil. Remember, the rocky soil is ground which has a layer of rock about two or three inches beneath the surface. And this is the seed where a stalk springs up quickly, but there's no root system. So when the sun comes up, the plant withers and dies. Again, we've already seen that this symbolizes the heart of the, the, heart of the apostate, who hears, receives with joy, but when trials or persecutions come, they bail out. They're only temporary. That's Jesus' words. And now we see today, some seed goes into the thorny ground. Now I need to explain agriculturally what the ground is like there in Palestine. When the farmer was preparing his field, he encountered some thorn bushes on top of the ground. And so he cleared these. The most popular method for clearing thorn bushes in first century Palestine was by burning. There's only one problem when you burn thorn bushes. The roots of the bush remained. They're hidden underground. Nice, deep, healthy thorn bush roots. So the sower tosses his seed right into the middle of this area, and the plant begins to grow and send down roots of its own. The only problem is, is the thorn bush had a head start. Not only that, the thorn bush is hardier. And so the grain never has a chance. The thorn bush actually begins to choke that plant out. There's only so much life that can be produced in a plot of dirt. In this case, it's survival of the fittest. The thorn bush wins. It entangles the root system and devours the weaker grain plant. No fruit ever comes to bear. That's the agricultural picture. What does it mean? Now here's where you're going to need to dig into the scripture. Look carefully at our text in Luke 8, Mark 4. And what we find is, here's another unbelieving heart. Now, When I talk to seminarians and young ministers, I always say, this is the tool that Jesus gives for spiritual analysis. When you go to a congregation, you need to recognize, you need to understand all four of these types of hearers will be in your congregation at all times. In a congregation our size, there are plenty of all four, plenty of wayside hearers, plenty of rocky ground hearers, plenty of thorny ground hearers, and lots and lots of good ground hearers. What does it mean? This third one, the thorn bush, thorny ground here, is another unbelieving heart. Another heart that has a quick response, but not a lasting relationship. How do we know it's an unbelieving heart? I say this every week, but we need to hear this repeated until we finally believe it. How do we know this is an unbelieving heart? Contrary to the carnal Christian theory, which many evangelicals espouse, which posit the no-growth theory. Let me remind you and ask, have you ever heard this before? I certainly was, I was groomed on this. Sandy and I were taught this growing up. We were taught that you could make a profession of faith, walk an aisle, sign a card, pray a prayer, and then live like the devil for the next 50 years and you'd be saved. Because once saved, always saved. 
Actually, what was meant by that was once professed, always saved. But Jesus has a clear way of analyzing. Jesus says in John 15, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. Jesus never chose anyone to be saved and then fruitless. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, Every, that's a qualifying word we need to understand. Every good tree bears good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit will be thrown down and cast into the fire. You will know them by their fruits. We know this third type of fruit, the thorny ground here, is an unbelieving heart because we are told in the text. Look clearly at Luke 8, verse 14. These are the ones at the end of the verse who bring no fruit to maturity. The simplest Bible reader can get that and say, oh, I get it. They're lost. They're not a believer. There's no fruit born. And so I want us to think about what those thorn bushes are. What does it look like when a person makes an immediate profession of faith? They're happy about it. But the word gets choked out. And they never bear any fruit. And thus demonstrate they're not converted. What does that mean? Dig in deep with me now. It's going to involve understanding what a thorn bush, how it acts agriculturally. The thorn bush represents all those systems of death that operate against the word of God. They're listed for us there in Luke eight fourteen. Look carefully. These are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life. And they bring no fruit to maturity. In the parallel in Mark chapter 4 verse 19, it expands it even more. And it uses this phrase as the dominant phrase. The cares of the world. The deceitfulness of riches. The desire for other things choke out the word. Let me say as an aside, one of the most difficult things to do in the preaching of the word is to call men and women to a thorough work of repentance. To come to Jesus Christ means you must believe and repent. Here is someone, this third type of hearer, who has temporary faith, but they do not have repentance. This hearer has been content with, like the farmer in the field, cleaning the topsoil. But they've never pulled out the roots of sin by God's grace. Please understand, salvation is not only a favorable hearing of the word, it's not only a hearing of the word with endurance, unlike the rocky soul here, but it's a hearing of the word that's accompanied by a deep sense of sin and a desire to root it out with a heartfelt repentance. Repentance is God's work of grace whereby he cancels the power of sin in our lives. That's why Jesus, when he came and began to preach the gospel, the first thing he said in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. That's why Jesus defined his own mission in Luke 5 as, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, for those of you who have never grappled with the subject of repentance, True repentance is not sorrow over consequences, but sorrow over sin. As a child, I was not a model child. In fact, I was the kindest thing my dad would say. I was a knucklehead. 
But I usually got caught in my sin. I wasn't smart enough. I was kind of a dumb knucklehead, actually. And when I got caught in my sin, this interaction would take place. You probably didn't grow up in a home like mine. My dad would say, Carl, go get my belt. And as a jailhouse lawyer, I would plead. The Eighth Amendment to the Constitution says this is cruel and unusual punishment. Well, what I was trying to argue with my dad is it's one thing to get, this is Dell City, Oklahoma talking here, a whooping. It's one thing to get a whooping, but it's another thing to have to go get the instrument of torture. Tried to make this case to my dad, but I got overruled by the judge. And I would say, Dad, this is like a man condemned on death row having to wire the electric chair. And I said, I'm having to go and get the belt. This was the belt that was a long, skinny, cracked brown leather belt in the second drawer on the left-hand side of my father's dresser. And as I would slowly go down the hall, it'd take 10 or 15 minutes to walk down the hall. So I would slowly go down the hall. Tears would well up in my eyes because I was so skinny, I had no padding. And I knew what this was going to do. And by the time I got back up the hall and handed the instrument of torture to my dad, I was just in tears. But I was never, ever sorrowful for my sin. Just over the consequences I was about to receive. And if you would have seen me, if you would have peered into 2112 Linda Lane and seen that scene unfolding in the living room, if you would have seen me before, during, or after the punishment, you may have thought, and boy, would you have been wrong. Wow, Carl is really repentant. Look at those tears. My friends, real biblical repentance. That's a gift of God's sovereign grace. Is sorrow over sin. A hatred of sin. A turning away from sin. The true believer says, I want the root systems pulled up. If no thoroughgoing repentance takes place, these sins will eat away at my heart and choke out the word. So look carefully at what scripture teaches about this here. Again, Mark 4.19, the parallel passage, the first thing in describing what these thorn bushes are calls them the cares of this world. The cares of this world is all the issues of the present age, temporal material concerns, school, exams, bills, the business. They all are made a priority and a bigger priority, and pretty soon the gospel and Christ are choked out. Luke adds... The deceitfulness of riches is also part of the thorn bush. The endless pursuit of bigger and better. Of course, in America, we worship wealth. We are obsessively preoccupied with riches. Jesus highlights what he calls the deceitfulness of riches. This has a subtle, seductive effect. And then, Mark says, there's a, a third part of the thorn bush. The desire for other things, the pleasures of this life. This is the hedonist. Now, I want you to think with me very carefully, and I realize this is going to be hard, because it's hard when, when this type of here is so close to you. It's hard to see this when it's right here, when it's sitting in the pew right next to you, when it is you. When Jesus says in Mark 4.19, here's the primary thorn bush, 
the cares of this world. This is the problem of worldliness. We like to sort of keep worldliness way over there. Worldliness is smoking, drinking, and dancing. Let me remind you what worldliness really is. First of all, let me say this. God has willed you and I to be in this world. Remember Jesus' prayer for us in John 17. I do not pray, O Father, that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil world, from the evil one. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And so Jesus never prayed that we should be removed from the world's influences, but that we should be left here to battle and grow, to fight against the thorn bushes. So what is worldliness? We should have a deep interest because Jesus says this is one of the things that chokes out the word, the cares of this world. Worldliness can refer to the person whose manner of thought and life is limited solely to the visible affairs of this planet and their own lifetime. This type of person rules out the realm of the Holy Spirit and life beyond death. Worldliness can also be of the 1 John 2.16 variety. This is a love for the creation rather than the creator. 1 John 2.16 defines worldliness this way. It's the lust of the flesh, sensualism. Pleasure, illicit sexuality. It's the lust of the eyes, materialism and covetousness. It's the pride of life. It's all about my self-esteem. I am somebody, my egoism. These things are a simple description of what drives the lost person. And the world has a methodology. Listen carefully. See if this sounds familiar. The world, first of all, wants to choke out the word. That's what Jesus tells us in describing this third sort of hearer. wants to choke out the word. We're told that the thorny ground hearer hears the word and initially receives it and delights in it, but the cares of this world choke it. This process is slow, even unnoticeable, as all spiritual vitality is sapped away. The cares of the world, getting that promotion, vacation, events, fads, fashion, busyness, It values slowly, more and more, the turf that is to be reserved for Christ. Well, the world not only wants to choke out the word, it wants to mold you, press you into its shape. In Romans 12, too, this is why Paul tells us, don't be conformed to this world. Paul speaks of how the world will exert Every pressure to squeeze your thinking into its mold, especially in a media culture where the world employs networks and advertising and publishing houses and the Internet, we have to recognize that the world is sending constant messages to us to think this way, believe that way, cast off that biblical perspective. The snare of the world is what draws us away from Christ. Paul, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, says... Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world more. For the Christian to resist the seduction of the world, he has to wake up and get out of bed every day saying, I'm going against the tide today. He must be willing to risk the loss of pleasing man to please God. He recognizes the call daily is to be a fool for Christ's sake. When Daniel, for example, was taken as a captive in Babylon, even as a young teenage boy, he recognized 
He must give up caring about the approval and applause of the world because it's the world that will choke out the word. How do you stand against the world? First of all, don't ever play down the difference between the church and the world. They're radically antithetical. Don't model yourself after the world's models and goals. Spend much more time making provisions for a settled eternity instead of transitory decades. Wean your heart away from the world. That's why John writes in 1 John 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Self-consciously mortify your affections for the world's priorities and worldviews. Of course, the ultimate remedy for overcoming the world is to look away from ourselves and to look to Christ. The one who said that he was not of this world, his kingdom was not of this world. Can, you, can this be done? Can you overcome the world? 1 John 5 says so. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The reason why I go extensively long on this type of hearer is of all the types of the unfruitful hearers, of all the types of wrong hearers, I fear this type is the most prevalent in our own immediate context. Woodruff Presbyterian Church. Men and women who are consumed by the desire for this world, who are choked by it. Materialism, consumerism, gone over the edge and run rampant. Bigger homes, nicer cars, more fashionable wardrobes. Right now there are people who are playing mental chess with me. Carl, you just stepped over the line. You moved on to sacred ground with me when you start dealing with my stuff. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, by which many have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. In that clear didactic passage, Paul writes to Timothy and says, there are cases of apostasy because of greed, because of worldliness. Are you somehow immune and can hold on just in the right proportion to the pursuit of the world and its goods and also hold on to the pursuit of Christ? Of course not. This was the problem of the Pharisee. When Jesus says in Luke 16, no servant can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And we are told, now the Pharisees were lovers of money. And that's what pierced them so, was Jesus came to the essence of their problem in the heart and says, Y'all are thorny bush hearers. You've heard the word, they've heard it from Jesus' lips. But the world, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches had choked it out. This is the hearer who has a crowded heart. But he has less and less and then no room for Jesus. 
He's temporarily shoves some things aside to make room for Jesus, but soon those things are moved back in and Jesus is shoved out. I have to solemnly warn you and tell you, this type of hearer always is carefully, gradually seduced. I've sat down with groups of people from youth to senior citizens, and I've, I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, I've focus grouped this parable. I've asked, do you know people who are wayside hearers, hard ground hearers, the first type of hearer? Oh, yeah, 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 know lots of them. Do you know people who are rocky soil hearers, who, who make a start with Christ, but when the heat is turned on, they don't persevere when trials come? Yeah. And then I ask about this. Do you know anyone who's a thorny ground here? Someone who hears the word, but the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches have choked out the word? And over and over again, no, I guess I don't. That's how deceptive the situation is. We don't even recognize when it's happening to us. How do you apply this word? Look carefully at the text and let me make a few applications. The first is, salvation is not adding Christ into your life, but it is making him your life. Let me say that again, and I want you to see the agricultural parallel. Salvation is not adding Christ into your life, but making him your life. Here was the agricultural problem. This seed was put into the ground right in the middle of, even though it was just below the surface, with other existing plants. This seed was added in with other growing things. You can't add Jesus in. He won't be the extra additive in your spiritual octane. He won't coexist peacefully. Jesus never offers himself as an additive. Here's how he does offer himself. Let me remind you. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? That's why Paul can describe the Christian life this way in Philippians 1. For to me to live is Christ. A saving relationship with Christ is not throwing him into the mix of your priorities. It's a vital, singular attachment to him. Let me press even further. Salvation is 100% devotion to Christ. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul, writing those last words that he would write before he's executed, said, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who, was, who enlisted him as a soldier. Do you hear that wording? It's the same wording that Jesus used. When Paul says, no one engaged in warfare, Paul meant the spiritual battle of the believer. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. When I was serving as a youth pastor, the worst one in the PCA, I won the award several years in a row. When I was in Anderson, South Carolina, Tommy was in my high school group. Very neat young man, and after high school, he joined the Marines. And I'd said when he joined the Marines, Tommy, I want to encourage you. And so 
want you to call me, write me. He said, well, no phone calls allowed, but I can write you a postcard. I said, please, I want to encourage, I want to hear how you're doing. I'd invested a lot of time to this young man, and he's going to be doing his basic training at Paris Island. And so a couple weeks into basic training, I got a postcard. Postcards are these things we used to do in the 80s where you would write a message and stick it in a mailbox. If you want to know about them, I can maybe show you one later. And Tommy wrote these words. My sergeant told me today that for the next eight weeks, I didn't need to worry about what to wear, where to go, when to go, doing laundry, buying gas, fixing meals, or anything else, because he was going to take care of everything. Sarge said, for the next several weeks, I'll be your mama and your daddy and your sweetheart and your best friend. If you need it, I'll give it to you. What does Sarge want in return for such benevolence? Only 100% devotion and obedience. In Tommy's last lines where he said, Carl, I think I'm beginning to understand what you were teaching when you said the Christian life means complete focus on one master. Are you so entangled today with the cares of this world that you cannot be devoted to Christ, that you cannot be devoted to his day and his word and his people? Are you ensnared by the pursuits of pleasure and home and job and possessions and hobbies instead of devoted to Christ? This parable is a 100% call to commitment to Christ and to disentanglement from the world. I would say as well, by way of application, this text is a solemn warning against materialism and greed. This is the heart that makes gestures towards Christ. But the cares of the world draw it back. Again, in the parallel in Mark chapter 4, we are told it's the deceitfulness of riches that choke out the word. You know what the deceitfulness of riches is. It's that battle to keep up with the Joneses and have whatever the culture says is the newest toy. This is the hearer who leads a double life, religion on Sunday and worldly pursuits the rest of the time. He's found his security in riches, possessions, and he's purposefully relegated the pursuit of Christ to a secondary and then a tertiary place. I'm not saying he's immoral, perhaps in the sexual sense. I'm saying... He lives for his possessions and economic well-being and comfort. He eventually reaps nothing but a harvest of thorns and not any fruit. Don't turn away from this word quickly. Stop. Hold this word up like a mirror to your face and examine your heart today. Ask yourself these questions. How many of my conversations are completely taken up with the cares of this life. Doesn't Jesus say in Luke chapter 6, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Analyze your own conversations for the last 24 or 48 hours. How many of them were all about the cares of this world? Does your mind often run to fantasizing about greater wealth and added possessions even during the preaching of the word? How tight is your hold on the things of this world? Do spiritual matters trouble you little and produce no follow-through but worldly problems? The cares of this life 
keep you awake at night, and they produce quick follow-through. But my friends, don't you see that the world and all its comforts and cares and rich promises can never deliver on what they promise? It cannot give contentment now, and it cannot give eternal life then. As we pray now, ask the Lord to root out every vestige of greed, every stronghold of materialism, so that you may be wholehearted, 100% committed to the Savior of this world, not committed to the world. Let's pray. Our Father, our hearts are so divided. The world beckons us so strongly, and we grasp so tightly onto this life's pleasures. We ask for the sovereign, gracious, merciful help of your Holy Spirit to now enable us to release our grip on the cares of this life and cling to you instead. We pray in the name of our all-sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.